Well, turn with me to uh, John chapter 18. And as you're finding that, I'd like to pray for us for just a moment. Our Father, we come to you now in this glorious section in John where we, with awe and wonder, begin to approach the cross. And so I pray that our time this evening, Lord, would serve you by making us more like Christ. I pray that our awe and wonder at the cross would transfer to our daily lives as we live in light of the cross, as we live in light of the sacrifice of Christ, and as we believe with all of our heart that the Lord Jesus Christ substituted himself for us, and that that might inspire our devotion, Lord, that our worship would be based on our love for what Christ has done for us, our love for Christ, and a continually uh, a continual sense of living in the shadow of the cross. And I pray that our time tonight would accomplish that purpose, that you would be honored and glorified through the proclamation of your word and through the obedience of your saints. And we would pray for Christ's sake, all for his glory. Amen. One of the landmark passages in our understanding of the gospel of Christ is 2 Corinthians 5.21. Probably some of you have this memorized For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is a a massive concept, and in this one monumental verse, there are a lot of moving parts. We see God the Father directing the work of salvation in terms of what role he would have God the Son play. God the Son is said not merely to deal with sin or to fight against sin, but to be made into sin, to be made sin. And Paul qualifies that astounding nature of this act in the fact that Christ is sinless. So it's not just that he was made to be sin, but the one who was sinless was made to be sin. And then we come to this time where now we're in the picture so that... In Christ, we might become the righteousness of God, not to reflect the righteousness of God, not to emulate the righteousness of God, not to model the righteousness of God, but to become the righteousness of God. This is monumental. It's huge. And this is key in our understanding of justification, that God has treated Christ as we deserve. He's treated us as Christ deserves. And an obvious concept we see in this verse is the concept of substitution. That the substitute was made, that Jesus took what you could not take, and that is the wrath of God against your sin. Now, this morning, we really just kind of began our run to the cross. We're examining now tonight another key component of the glorious gospel, one that you must believe to be saved. And that component tonight is the substitution of Christ. The substitution of Christ, that Christ can't simply be a good man. He can't just be an example to follow that misses the point entirely of the ministry of Jesus. At the core of his mission was to jump in front of the wrath of God which was aimed at you and for him to absorb the fury against your sin which rightly was coming straight toward you. Now this morning what we saw was the kind of the setup for the arrest of Jesus Christ. We saw the first part of this com- these components of the gospel that we must believe And we're using each message to put together a compact gospel presentation. This morning what we saw was that Jesus Christ came as a completely willing sacrifice. He freely fulfilled his father's plan for his suffering. Tonight, the next part we must believe in our gospel presentation we're putting together. Because you cannot pay the penalty of your sins, Christ offered himself as a substitute on your behalf. Now, by now, Jesus has been betrayed by Judas. And the reality of the coming suffering of our Lord really comes to fruition. It's no longer theory. It's no longer prophecy. It is now reality. And beginning at this point in John 18, John now starts tracking two unfolding dramas at the same time. What's happening to Jesus on the one hand and what's happening to Peter, who has now just run away with the other disciples as the other gospels record. And so for this message in particular, we're going to consider what's happening with Jesus. Therefore, we'll skip to a couple of other passages. Next time, we'll look at what's happening with Peter and the implication of Peter's failure to stay true to Christ at that moment. 
So this is a narrative. It's a story. We're just going to let the drama unfold. And basically it, it unfolds in about three parts. And so we'll just divide it into those parts. Part one, Jesus is brought to his accusers. Jesus is brought to his accusers. And so this begins in verse 12 of chapter 18. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So when Jesus is arrested, it's dark, it's late, late into the night. His disciples had already fallen asleep while he was praying in the garden. But this was a time of deep crisis in prayer and, and agony for Jesus. He had taken Peter, James, and John with him to a more private place, a more secluded place in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Mark fourteen thirty four records that he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And this is when Jesus enter, enters into really the most emotional time we ever see him on this earth. And that is this time of intense prayer to his father, which was for the purpose of spiritual preparation for what was about to happen to him. He was preparing And now, after his arrest, Jesus is alone. His disciples have scattered. Matthew 26, 56 tells us that all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And so now he's alone. Now it seems that after Judas and the temple guard had led the way in this arrest, now the Romans have kind of taken over. And you recall that we said this morning that this is Passover week. The Romans had beefed up their security by bringing in extra soldiers, probably hundreds of them, uh, perhaps even thousands, extra cohorts of soldiers from the fortress in Caesarea, which is on the coast to the north. Because now the population of Jerusalem would explode with hundreds of thousands of visitors. And so the Romans were eager to keep the peace, to keep security, to keep riots to a minimum or completely minimized. But the Romans, in accordance with their usual practice, they took Jesus first to the local authorities, the local civil, and in this case, the local religious authority, the high priest. Now, the high priest role had turned very much into a family business, and that's what it was about. It was a money-making business, and even though Annas was no longer officially the high priest, his great influence continued on and it's very significant that they brought him to annas first he's not officially the high priest anymore he's he's been out of office for some time but he is what we call today kind of the godfather over the family business maybe he's not officially in charge but he is the head of a very corrupt family which had degenerated into simply growing wealthy off the temple business and what do i mean by the temple business you recall that on two different occasions Jesus cleansed the temple of money changers and those selling animals and they would rent out space in the temple courtyard to these businesses and guess who got the money from that those rentals it was the high priest and his family and so uh, this time of the year was a big time money maker for them but Annas hadn't been the high priest in quite some time he was the high priest from AD 6 until AD 15 And in the year 15, Pontius Pilate's predecessor, a guy named Valerius Gratus, he booted Annas out of the high priest role. Now, according to Jewish law, the high priest office was for life. Once you held it, you went until you died. But Rome had a policy of avoiding concentration of power with one person. They felt that loyalties would develop then. So they frequently changed high priests. But the way they did it was they allowed the power transfer to happen within the same family. Why is this? Well, undoubtedly in exchange for helping keep the peace and for receiving financial kickbacks as well. And so even though Rome officially removed Annas, he still had enormous influence. According to Josephus, uh, the ancient historian, five, at least five that we know of, of Annas's sons were also high priest at one time or another, And right now, apparently he ran out of sons, so his son-in-law, Joseph Caiaphas, was now the high priest. But even though Caiaphas was technically the high priest, probably most considered that Annas was the real high priest. This is a very nuanced historical detail which John preserves, which helps us understand the political landscape of that day. 
And so now John reminds his readers that it was the official high priest Caiaphas who had made really what we might call an unconscious prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. And I want to take a moment on this to remind you of this. Turn back a couple of pages to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verse 45. John eleven forty-five. 45, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. He restored him to his sisters, Mary and Martha. In John eleven forty-five. many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Here it is. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The leaders of Israel, not one time are they ever recorded denying the miraculous power of Christ. They didn't try to deny it. It was undeniable. When you have thousands of witnesses to the miracles of Christ, that doesn't make sense to do that. But their concern was what people coming to faith in Christ would do to them. And so they saw Jesus as their enemy. The fear that the leadership had was that if enough people believed in Jesus, the Romans would take away the wealth and the privileged position of the leaders, what they call our place. They would take away our place and they would destroy Israel as they knew it, our nation. And they were right to a certain degree because the Romans did not tolerate rebellion. They absolutely didn't. But they, they totally misjudged the intentions of Jesus. He wasn't coming to establish his earthly kingdom he came to seek and save the lost the establishment of his earthly kingdom would happen at a later time that happens at his second coming but you begin to see that they will protect their position at all costs the ringleader of the bunch joseph caiaphas the high priest he speaks up now verse 49 but one of them caiaphas who was high priest that year said to them you know nothing at all you can see his great humility and love for the lord there nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish he was arrogant he was condescending he was self-important even telling the council the ruling council you know nothing at all Caiaphas lasted longer than any other high priest in Palestine in Roman Palestine during this time he lasted 21 years which was, was unusual. Some high priests lasted days before Rome took care of them. And so what Caiaphas is showing is that he would do whatever it takes to keep Rome happy and to keep them off his back, including being willing to murder one man to keep the peace. And here's his logic. If Jesus dies, then the likelihood of an insurrection, the likelihood of a rebellion under Jesus dies with him. And we continue on as always. And so look at verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Before the trial of Jesus Christ ever happened, they already had a verdict. They were just trying to set up a way to bring that verdict. Little side note of irony here. The Sanhedrin, the council, would be successful in crucifying Jesus Christ. And we said this morning that's because Christ let them not because they did it, but they would be successful, but the price would be high. The whole nation would perish by the Romans in AD 70 because of their rejection of Christ. What did that do? It ended their place, no more high priest, and it ended their nation as they knew it. They were gone. And the nation as they knew it wouldn't be back for almost 2,000 years. And so, ironically, they lost it anyway. Now, with that background, back in John 18, part one of this drama, Jesus is brought to his accusers. This is who they are. Part two of this drama, we'll just label this one, Jesus exposes his accusers. He exposes his accusers. Now we skip ahead to verse 19. We'll leave Peter for next week. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Now, the high priest referenced here is still the high priest emeritus, Annas. Caiaphas doesn't get into the picture, doesn't get his turn until verse 24. And the center of his concern, what he was going for to get this guilty verdict, to get the death penalty, 
was who Jesus claimed to be. When the Jewish leadership would shortly present Jesus to Pontius Pilate, they would explain, as John 19, 7 will record, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. Now, a little interesting historical note here. In a formal Jewish hearing in the first century, in other words, in a legal trial, it was illegal to question the defendant. The case had to rest on the testimony of other witnesses, not the testimony of the defendant. But they didn't make this an official trial, an official hearing. They took him to Annas. He's the unofficial high priest, and he's questioning Jesus. So in this way, Caiaphas gets around the law. He was letting his father-in-law do the initial dirty work. And in irony of ironies, they're trying to appear as though they're keeping the law all while they're murdering the Son of God. But Jesus doesn't answer directly. Jesus rarely answers directly. In verse 20, Jesus answered him, I have always spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. You know this, by the way, that Jesus says nothing about his disciples. He continues in his determination to protect them. He leaves them out of the picture. And he says, I've said nothing in secret. Now, yes, he has met with his disciples privately many times, but it wasn't to subvert them. It wasn't to start a rebellion. Uh, if, if anything, his disciples were the ones who wanted to start a rebellion, and he always put it down. He's, no, that's not why I'm here. He met with them privately to teach them in more detail what he'd already taught publicly. Jesus was an open book. You could ask him, what are you teaching? And he would tell you. And so there really wasn't any point in questioning the disciples about his teaching. Thousands of people had heard what he taught. And in fact, Jesus drives this point home in verse 21. He always turns things around on the people who are accusing him. I love this. Why do you ask me? All of a sudden, who's on trial now? It's not him. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. What is Jesus doing? He's pointing out already, right now, that his trial is taking on the air of illegality. It's illegal. The authorities, if they were trying to find the truth, should be witness, questioning witnesses as to what Jesus taught. As a matter of fact, witnesses for the defendant were supposed to be heard before witnesses against the defendant ever were heard. And, by the way, this is familiar to you, it was illegal to try to induce any sort of self-accusation, to trick a defendant into accusing himself. This is part of our own legal system. In fact, this is one of the foundations of our own legal system. The Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution says that no person, quote, shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. That was true in ancient Israel as well. And yet that's precisely what Annas is attempting to get Jesus to do and Jesus has exposed his hypocrisy, exposed his corruption, exposed his sin. And in a matter of about two or three sentences, this gets turned around from Jesus being on trial to the Jewish leadership being on trial under the judge of the one who made them. So he exposes his accusers. So part one, Jesus is brought to his accusers, then he exposes his accusers, and we could do a third part we'll call Jesus challenges his accusers. And he challenges his accusers. Verse 22. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? So one of the temple guards struck Jesus. This is a specific Greek word that speaks of a blow to the side of the head with an open hand. So th this isn't a slap to the cheek. This isn't a, a, a little reminder this is a hard blow, probably to the side of the head, right on the ear. And if you've ever been hit on the ear, you know how that can hurt. It's, it's a painful blow. This was not a little kind of girly slap. This was a full-on manly whack to the side of the head, meant to inflict a lot of pain right on the ear. Very, very painful. And by the way, it was illegal to strike an unconvicted person. But you notice that there's nobody there to go to the defense of Christ or to challenge this action. And so Jesus now speaks to the officer who slapped him, who hit him on the side of the head. Verse 23, Jesus answered him. 
If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? What's he telling the officer? Saying, if I've broken the law, tell me which law. Which law have I broken? But if I've asked to have the law followed, which is exactly what he did in verse 21, he's simply saying, follow the law, then why do you strike me? Jesus has challenged his accusers. He's already unmasked them as those who are able to win this case with any sort of fairness at all. So they're resorting now to a totalitarian kangaroo court, an unofficial way to get Jesus quickly convicted. By the way, Jesus was following his own principle of turning the other cheek when he was struck. The one who could have avenged himself did not avenge himself. He went all the way to the cross but he was also bearing witness to the truth. And I think we should point out, Jesus wasn't in a desperate legal self-defense situation where he's desperately trying to be acquitted. In fact, we said this morning, he put himself in the position where he would be convicted. He had to appear as one who was a sinner, though he knew no sin. But what he's doing is he's exposing and now challenging the wickedness of those who are uh, accusing him, the wickedness of those who are treating him in this way. And so now by being shuffled through this mock trial at rapid pace, he's being murdered by the appearance of legal means. And by challenging them now, he's revealed their wickedness. I think it's important to remember that the Jewish leadership cannot claim ignorance. They knew the truth about Christ They never questioned his miracles. They never questioned what he did. But here's the truth. John 3.19, this is the judgment. The light has come to the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. They were doing what Paul says that unbelievers do. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This is Romans 1. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Do you understand that these leaders knew that Jesus was the Messiah? And yet they would protect their position at all costs. And so to keep this mock trial going as quickly as possible, the trial had to move from unofficial to more official in order to get a true conviction that would carry weight and would result in a, an execution. So in verse 24, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Annas failed. He was utterly a failure. He, he couldn't get Jesus to condemn himself. He couldn't get Jesus to accidentally uh, condemn the disciples. The worst they could do is hit him. They didn't get anywhere. And so he sent him to Annas. If Anna, or to Caiaphas, rather. If Annas had gotten a confession from Jesus, they could have gone straight to Pontius Pilate with this confession and witnesses to the confession. But he didn't get one. And so he had to take the next step. He sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. So now Jesus is still tied up and he is in custody. If the Jews were to be successful in their plot to murder Jesus, there had to be an official accusation so that he could get to the governor, Pontius Pilate, who then had the power to execute Jesus. The Jews weren't given that authority, only the Romans were. And so Jesus is now sent to Caiaphas and we're reminded of these significant words spoken by Caiaphas. It was Caiaphas back in verse 14 who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. That was the accidental prophecy, so to speak, that he gave back in John 11. But the words of Caiaphas, he intended them for evil. His words carried more than just the voluntary responsible wickedness that he was devising. They also carried, listen carefully, the providential meaning that God intended and Caiaphas did not intend. Because back in John 11, you don't have to turn there. The commentary continues. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Because Caiaphas was high priest, he was technically still God's spokesman to Israel. And God used God's spokesman to Israel to unintentionally speak prophetically of the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. And when Caiaphas 
will stand before Christ himself at the great white throne judgment and the books are opened and he is accused of being part of the crucifixion of Christ. The accusation will be from your own lips you said he is the substitute and yet you did not believe. Proverbs 16.9 says that the heart of man plans his way but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 21.1, the, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And so the prophecy of Caiaphas, from Caiaphas's standpoint, was meant to say we need to murder Jesus for our own benefit, that God caused him providentially to say those words because they were true, that he would be the sacrifice for his people. But of course, the death of Christ is much bigger than just being the substitutionary sacrifice for Israel. It would accomplish the bringing in of all of God's future redeemed, not only Jews who were lost, but Gentiles would be brought into the kingdom by forgiveness of sin. And so through the unwitting mouth of Caiaphas, God has revealed the purpose of the death of Christ, and that is to be a substitute, a substitute sacrifice. And in this substitution of Christ, what we're really talking about theologically is the atonement. Specifically, uh, atonement, which theologians have helpfully labeled for substitutionary atonement or penal substitution. Let me give you a definition of atonement. I think they'll be helpful to you. The doctrine of penal substitution states that God gave himself in the person of his son to suffer instead of us the death, punishment, and curse due to fallen humanity as the penalty for sin. Let me give you that one more time because I want to talk to you about the atonement. The doctrine of penal substitution states that God gave himself in the person of his son to suffer instead of us the death, punishment, and curse due to fallen humanity as the punishment for sin. There is an enthralling magnificence to the idea that God himself is giving himself for his own people. That Christ died a humiliating death. He became accursed for us. He bore the pain, the wrath, the rejection due to us. Listen, the atonement is the centerpiece. It's the hub. It's the core of the gospel. And I, I think this is a perfect opportunity for us to deepen the ruts in our mind concerning the atonement, penal substitution, because this doctrine has major implications for you as a Christian and certainly for your understanding of the gospel. So I want to just take our last few moments and I want you to put your listening ears on and I want to talk to you about the atonement because it's clearly presented here in this text and what I want to do is just simply give you some descriptors of the atonement. I'll give you five of them. Five descriptors of the atonement. I won't try to have you turn to all these scriptures. There's, there's a few we're going to go to, so it'll be more helpful for you to just listen. Now here's five key descriptors of the atonement. Now, I hope this will help you wrap your arms around this key doctrine. First descriptor we'll call, the atonement is a foundational condition. It's a foundational condition. It sets the stage for how God would restore his relationship to mankind. It's foundational as a condition. And our key text for this goes all the way back, you would expect, to Genesis, because this is a foundation. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely what? die God gave Adam a wife created especially to be his companion and helper but both of them succumbed to the temptation they ate of the forbidden fruit and so they were to die but instead of Adam and Eve being the first deaths in history Genesis 3 21 records the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them how did he make garments of skin well God spilled blood he spilled blood such that Adam and Eve did not immediately deal with their, the consequences of their sin. They would eventually die, but now they would die in faith. They would die in faith because the animal sacrifice was merely now a forerunner of a greater blood sacrifice that would be made in the future. Ironically, the sacrifice of a descendant of Eve, as prophesied in Genesis 3.15. So it's a, there's a, it's a foundational condition. It, that's what all of redemption is based on, is blood sacrifice. Let me give you a second descriptor of the atonement. We'll call this one a mandatory prescription. 
It's a mandatory prescription. And now we move farther in Scripture to Exodus 12. And these are, these are seminal passages for our understanding of the atonement. This is an important chapter in the Pentateuch, and it relates to the events of the very first Passover. You recall that God's people were slaves in Egypt, but the time for their deliverance was at hand, and they were given specific details of a special meal that was to include unleavened bread and, most importantly, a roasted lamb, a sacrificial lamb. The blood from this lamb was to be sprinkled on the doorposts of the Israelite home so that they would be spared from this tenth plague of God that God was about to visit on Egypt, and that was the killing of every firstborn in every family from Pharaoh himself down to the lowest slave and even among the animals. And so by means of this sacrifice, of this lamb, there would be salvation from the judgment of God coming to the land of Egypt. But there's a a major distinction that we make between this tenth plague and the first nine. In the first nine plagues, no Israelites were ever in danger. But the tenth one is different. The plagues of blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness... Those were all unconditional protection for Israel. But in the 10th plague, the killing of the firstborn, God's protection of Israel is conditional. They must have a blood sacrifice and it must be according to God's prescription. No self-styled atonement. What if someone said, well, we uh, we decided to kill a different animal? No atonement. Well, we decided to offer God a fruit basket instead of this sacrifice. No atonement. Well, we decided to just believe that God is like Santa Claus and he just loves everybody. No atonement. It is a mandatory prescription. And God commanded that this Passover meal be celebrated annually to remember his grace and mercy. So it's very significant that Jesus used the Passover meal with his disciples to make a significant change in the Passover meal. They really celebrated the night that Jesus would be arrested, the last God-sanctioned Passover. The last significantly Passover that is official. No more Passovers. Because now Jesus has made a shift. Mark 14 records, as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. There's the shift. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they drank all of it. And he said to them, this is my blood. There's the shift of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And so this confirmed what John the Baptist had proclaimed loudly to thousands of people three and a half years earlier when he cried out, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Apostle Peter made this connection abundantly clear when he said in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a what? A lamb that is without blemish or spot. Let me give you a third descriptor of the atonement so that we can deepen these ruts in our own minds. The atonement is a deflective payment. A deflective payment. Now let me explain this. We go to another Hugely important passage when understanding the atonement, and that is Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 gives us the details and the institution of the annual Day of Atonement in Israel. The Day of Atonement involves significant sacrifice. It was really the the central feature of Leviticus, which basically teaches, Leviticus teaches, that the relationship between a holy and perfect God and an unholy and sinful people can only be maintained through sacrifice. That's the only way. In fact, the Day of Atonement is still remembered today in the Hebrew phrase from Leviticus 16, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. This is an interesting word, Kippur. When God is the subject, it means to forgive. It can also have to do with cleansing Leviticus 16.30, For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. So in that verse we see Kippur along with cleansing. It also has to do with the idea of a ransom, a payment. In fact, it's the same root word in Hebrew as atonement. 
The Hebrew words tend to have three basic letters to them, and it's the same three letters. They're just pronounced differently, atonement or ransom. This word for ransom can speak of a financial payment. Exodus 30, verse 11, and the verses following speaks of a census tax. Quote, each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord, a payment of money. But this ransom, this payment can also be the life of an animal. In fact, it's more likely to be that of blood. But Kippur, and more importantly for our purposes tonight, also reflects to, refers to the deflecting, the deflection of the wrath of God. I'll give you an example. Numbers 25 describes a terrible time in the life of Israel where men were being immoral with local Moabite women and they were going to um, pollute the, the pure blood of Israel and, and make what was once a nation no longer a nation. And one man blatantly in selfishness and in greed, brought a foreign woman to be with him right in the center of the camp, brought him to his own tent. But you recall that Phineas, the priest, went into the man's tent and he drove a spear into both the man and the woman. And what happened? It turned the wrath of God. It deflected the wrath of God away from the nation. God praised Phineas. Numbers twenty-five, thirteen. Because he was jealous for his God, listen to this, and made atonement for the people of Israel. How did he make atonement? Instead of Israel dying, that man and woman died in their sin. And it deflected the wrath of God. The wrath of God must be diverted. It must be turned away. The wrath of God isn't stopped. It's simply deflected. It must be turned away for you to be able to have fellowship with him. And that's only possible through a substitute sacrifice because the wrath of God must have an object. It must have someone who receives it because of sin. If you receive it, you're doomed. Therefore, it must be someone else and it must be someone who is worthy. Let me give you a fourth descriptor of the atonement. We'll call this one a deliberate gift. A deliberate gift. And we're really just hitting the most important texts in the Bible on atonement. Isaiah 53, the song of the suffering servant. This is the clearest Old Testament passage which speaks of the suffering, death, and resurrection by the way of Christ. And in particular, atonement is very obviously highlighted. In verses 4, 5, and 6, you have this emphatic use of pronouns to substitute himself for us. And this is very clear. And and let me read these, these three verses to you and just put emphasis on these pronouns. And this is the atonement. This is the deliberate gift of Christ. For he has surely borne our gifts and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us. All. That's the atonement. That's the atonement. Verse 11, he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, he bore the sin of many, and that's us. Listen, some have said that Isaiah 53 is simply representative of the suffering that Israel went through in exile. It'll do anything to avoid this being Christ. The suffering of Christ far outweighed any suffering Israel experienced in exile. And the exile was not redemptive. The exile did not cleanse Israel of her sin. There still needed to be a blood sacrifice. And in fact, Isaiah 53.10 in this song of the suffering servant, Christ is referred to as an offering for guilt. And he would be just like Isaac with Abraham. When Abraham was commanded by God to offer his son Isaac, Isaac would have been a teenager. Abraham's a very old man. No way Abraham is wrestling Isaac onto an altar to be slaughtered. Isaac got on the altar, just like Christ went to the cross willingly. He was a deliberate gift. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Let me give you one more descriptor of the atonement. And I'm cheating here just a little bit because basically for the sake of time, I'm just lumping all the rest into one category We'll call this one a central truth. A central truth. 
this speaks of what the New Testament has to say about the atonement. The New Testament shows in explicit terms what the Old Testament gives in shadows, prophecies, and patterns. The New Testament is extremely clear, extremely explicit, and I just want to kind of run quickly through parts of the New Testament. Mark 10.45. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem for the final time. He's preparing to die. He said so three times. Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10. James and John then take that time to ask Jesus for the second-in-command positions when he, as they thought was about, he was about to do, brings his kingdom on earth. And Jesus emphasized to them that this trip to earth was not for the purpose of taking a throne, but for suffering. And he says in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a, what? Ransom for many. That's the atonement. You go five chapters later in Mark 15, beginning in verse 33, And when the sixth hour had come, this is Christ on the cross, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one word I want to point out to you is darkness. Why was there darkness? Well, a simple look at the Old Testament tells you this. Darkness is a signifier of the wrath of God. How could it be anything other than darkness? Isaiah 13, 9 says that the day of the Lord is a day when the sun will be dark and the moon will not shed its light. Earlier, in Mark 14, 27, Jesus told the disciples that they would all fall away from him and he quoted Zechariah 13, 7 that the sheep will be scattered when the Lord strikes the shepherd. Who killed Jesus? God did. At the cross, God would be the agent of Christ's suffering as Jesus bore the sins of all who would believe in him. John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus uses the metaphor of a shepherd and a sheep once again. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There's the atonement. Now, Jesus is not describing a potential danger. He's not saying, if anything is about to happen to you, I'll lay down my life for you. He's not saying that if and only if his sheep are in danger, then he would lay down his life. But just a few verses later, Jesus announces his intention. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. It was a definite intention. The sheep are already in danger. Hell is awaiting. The the gates are open. The unforgiven are ready to go to hell. And so atonement must be achieved if the wrath of God is to be averted. So the sheep were already in danger and Jesus resolved to give his life to save theirs. We have to go faster, but we just want to touch in the New Testament. Let's think about Paul. The Apostle Paul, Romans 3, beginning of verse 23, very classic verses for us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. There's atonement. To be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Does that sound familiar from Exodus 12? Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. There's the atonement. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And it goes on to say that Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's Paul. What about Peter? 1 Peter 2, 1, Christ also suffered for you. Same chapter, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. I I think it's significant that Peter very often uses sins in the plural. That he doesn't just say Christ bore your sin, but your sins. And you recall what we said this morning, that your sins are actual sins. There is a list that could be written out of your sins. He didn't just bear your sin in a vague sense. He became responsible for every wicked thought, word, and deed you have ever 
ever committed. Every single one. In 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So what's the atonement? It's a foundational condition. Shed blood on your behalf is the only way to appease the wrath of God. It's a mandatory prescription. There are no other options. Either the shed blood of Christ is applied to the doorpost of your life or you die in your sin. There's no other option. It's a deflective payment. The atonement accomplishes the diverting, the incomprehensible wrath of God away from you and to Christ instead. And it's a deliberate gift. The countless times in Scripture that we see Christ died for you, Christ died for you, Christ died for you, in your place, instead of you, and we're, we're blown away by the fact that Jesus put himself in your place on purpose, in love, so that you might receive eternal bliss, eternal blessedness. And we see that it's a central truth, and I didn't even touch the mountaintops of what the New Testament says about the atonement. The Bible shouts the atonement from the rooftops. The core of the earth, I read this week, is a solid ball of iron and nickel and a bunch of other metals. It's 1,500 miles across and it's about four times the density of the earth's surface. Meaning... If you pick up a bowling ball made out of the core of the earth, it's going to weigh about 60 or 70 pounds. And it is the core of the earth that is the foundation upon which the whole earth was built by God. And I read an interesting article that if the core of the earth was different by just 1% or 2%, it would have a lasting impact on the rest of the world. And in fact, the rest of the world could even come apart. It is that which creates the gravitational pull which keeps our earth together. It's important. It's everything. Without the core, then the rest comes apart. That's what the atonement is for the Christian. It is the core of our faith. It's the centerpiece. The fact that Christ substituted himself for you. Sometimes I like to send you away with one thing. Hopefully you'll remember. If you don't remember anything else, would you hear this? Jesus did not come to earth to live with his friends. He came to earth to die for his enemies. And that was you and that was me. And that is the atonement. This morning and this evening, we saw some minor characters. Two of them in particular, both connected to the high priest. Both of them assistants. Both are highlighted in John 18. We have the one that we saw tonight, an unnamed officer who indignantly slapped Jesus on the ear and was challenged to produce a valid accusation. And then you have, as we saw this morning, the named servant, Malchus, whose ear Peter cut off and whose ear Jesus recreated and restored. Quite a contrast between these two men. Why is Malchus named? Why do we know his name? Why did John take the time to put in Greek in parentheses that the servant's name was Malchus? Did Malchus later respond to the gospel and come to faith in the one who performed his last earthly miracle of healing on his ear? I wonder if Malchus remembered with poignant irony how many times Jesus had said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Meaning, having spiritual perception and the God-given ability to receive the truth of the gospel. Malchus is never named again. But we have a good precedent for why he is named here in John 18. He joins the ranks of Alexander and Rufus. Alexander and Rufus are named by name in Mark's gospel as the sons of Simon of Cyrene, who carried the cross of Christ. And Alexander and Rufus are mentioned in the Gospels because they would later be part of the church. The people reading the Gospel of Mark would know who Alexander and Rufus are. There is no other compelling reason to name Malchus except that readers of the Gospel of John would say, hey, I know that guy. He went to my church. And if you look at the contrast between Malchus, who didn't fight back, who didn't show anger, we have no recorded words of Malchus, and the other assistant who slapped the ear of Jesus Christ. 
it is extremely compelling to see that Malchus very likely came a, became a believer. And because there's every reason to think that he did, would not this be a classic illustration of the substitution of Christ? That the very one who helped put him on the cross would be saved by the same act of Christ dying for the sins of all who would believe in him. Malchus, there at the arrest of Christ, healed by Christ. I wonder what happened when Malchus went to heaven when he met Jesus. I I wonder if his first words were to Malchus, how's the year? Your sin necessitated the cross and your sin is what Jesus took as your substitute. And so I hope that you will give him thanks. I don't think we'll ever fully grasp the atonement. We'll spend all of eternity trying. But it is the core. It is the centerpiece. It is the, the glorious, magnificent, lit up middle of the gospel. And I hope that you will rejoice as I have as I studied this. Caiaphas advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And he did. He died for you. And he died for me. Our Father, we thank you for the atonement. We thank you for the pattern set all through Scripture as we saw in Genesis 2 and Exodus 12 and Leviticus 16, Isaiah 53, and then just peppered all throughout the New Testament. And so, Lord, we give you thanks for the atonement of Christ. I pray that we would do our best to wrap our minds around the glory of the atonement and to be mindful that for every sin we ever commit, that was in the mind of Christ as the darkness overcame him on the cross and he received the punishment. He felt the guilt. He experienced the degradation and the humiliation of every sin we would commit as our substitute so that someday we will stand before you and you will simply say, welcome home with no mention of sin, no mention of guilt, For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And for that we give you thanks and we give you praise. In Christ's name and to his glory, amen.